Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Broadcast today. I'm Ken Bear, a pastor at Faith Dialogue, a ministry here in Celebration, Florida. We work cooperatively with all of the area churches in Celebration, Florida, including Celebration Community Church, Corpus Christi Catholic Church, Community Presbyterian Church, Illuminate Church, Celebration Seventh day Adventist, and Celebration Anglican Fellowship. Today, our call to worship is from the 11th chapter of Matthew. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Today's worship is provided by Celebration Community Church with uh, the worship minister, Luke Heinch. me and delivered me from every fear those who look on me are radiant they never be ashamed never be ashamed this poor man cried the Lord heard me and saved me from my enemies. The Son of God surrounds His saints. He will deliver them. He will deliver them. Oh, His name for 
continuing in our study of the Acts of the Apostles. Now this is a comprehensive history of the beginning of the church from Pentecost through the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. It's written by Dr. Luke who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. While the focus of the Gospels and quite frankly the entire Old Testament, the entire Bible for that matter, was on the ministry of Jesus, this book this book, The Acts of the Apostles, is actually about the growth of the, of the early church. Um, the Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. The word in Greek that is translated in our English Bibles for church uh, comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Uh, ekklesia is a, a compound Greek word. Uh, the first part, ek, means to come out, and the other word is kaleo which is a Greek word that means to be, to be called. So, so taken together, the church is actually an assembly of individuals, a group of people that are, that are called. Specifically, they're called by God to be a part of this, this body of Christ. Now the church we know is not a building. It's not an organization. It's not a denomination. The church is comprised of every man, every woman and every child uh, that calls Jesus Christ their, their Lord and Savior. Uh, it's undivided. We are, we are one. And while it has elders and pastors and ministers in various leadership positions, because it's the body of Christ, the true head of the church is none other than, than Jesus Christ. He is the head. Now in the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to see that there are, there are two men, Paul and Peter, that are the the key figures in this historical book as we look at the, the beginning of the church. Today we're picking up in verse 20 
of chapter 9 in the Acts of the Apostles. If you, if you have your Bible, go out and get it, get your notes. Uh, you're going to want to be able to take some notes on this, on this message today. If you have something electronic, turn on your cell phones or your, Bible, or your electronic Bibles, your, your PCs, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Um, now this passage, uh, we're going to be taking a look at, at Saul, uh, also called Paul, and the last time we saw him, he was in, in Damascus. At the beginning of this chapter, Saul is, Saul is angry. Uh, the Bible describes him as, as furious. The scriptures say he was breathing threats against the disciples, these, these early Christians. He had obtained letters from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the religious authority. This, these were the, this was the temple priests, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were in charge. And they had authority over all of the synagogues in the area. And he had letters that he could go and take a look for, for believers, for these early Christians. And if he found them, he could capture them and bring them back to Jerusalem. Now he's traveling to Damascus. And Damascus from Jerusalem is a significant journey of about 150 miles. And he was traveling with a group of, of armed soldiers. These were the temple guard. Jesus, however, met him personally on the road to Damascus. The verse, verses in chapter 9 say, says that there was a, a bright light. And the next thing we see is that Saul's on, on the ground. He's, he's blinded. And a voice from heaven comes and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then these interesting words, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, referring to, to an ox uh, that would be so stubborn as to kick against a goad, a, a stick that shows him what direction he should be going into. Saul is, is struck blind. He, he's told to go and wait in Damascus, wait for instructions. And then the, the, the passage in the Bible continues. It says there was a disciple named Ananias. And, a, and a he had a vision of the Lord. And the Lord said to him, go to, to Saul and to lay hands on him. Well, Saul receives his sight. He's converted and baptized by Ananias. So let's pick up the story from there in, in verse 20. This is just a few days after Saul has been converted and then baptized by Ananias. Verse 20, it says, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on the name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. You know, last week we, we took a look at the, the conversion of, of Saul, and we said that conversion was remarkable. It was the most remarkable, an awesome, almost unbelievable conversion uh, of all time. And one of the reasons was that Saul was the enemy of the church, the enemy of, of Jesus. However, we said that Saul had, had two things going for him, two things. And the first was that he, he loved God. He actually thought he was doing God a, a favor in persecuting, arresting, and killing these Christian followers of, of, of Jesus. Secondly, we said that Paul was, was very learned. Uh, he had studied. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards in both Greek as well as Hebrew. Back a few chapters, the apostles Peter and John 
were standing trial in Jerusalem in front of the Sanhedrin for preaching and teaching about Jesus, the Jewish council orders them to, to stop, to cease and desist. Of course, Peter and John refuse. And there's a, there's a Pharisee, a rabbi teacher, a very famous rabbi called Gamaliel, um, who encouraged the Sanhedrin to take it easy on Peter and John. He says, you'll not be able to stop these men and you'll find yourself fighting against God. Now this rabbi, Gamaliel, uh, is the grandson of Hillel, the elder. Uh, Hillel was a, a very famous, he's famous still to this day. There's a, a Jewish campus group, perhaps you saw it when you were in the university, called Hillel. And it's an organization of, of Jewish students. And it's named for this elder Hillel who lived in the first century BC. Saul, also known as Paul, was a, a student of uh, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel. Uh, Saul had developed an expert knowledge in the scriptures and God was going to put him to use. We see in these verses today uh, that, that this is the conversion of, of Paul. Since all of the Old Testament scriptures didn't contradict Jesus, Saul was able to immediately embrace what the scriptures said about the Messiah and explain to them that the Messiah had actually come. Verse 20 says, immediately, immediately Saul preached Jesus, or preached Christ in the synagogues. And notice this simple message. Paul's message was, he is the Son of God. Saul went from foe to friend, from persecutor to pastor, from destroyer to disciple in just a matter of a, of a few days. Actually, the conversion of Saul was instantaneous. It didn't take a few days. The Holy Spirit took up residence and Saul was born again. It just took a, he just took a few days to, to rest up. Now, while, fall, while Saul's conversion was dramatic, remember that every single believer, every single conversion has the same dramatic, confer, uh, um, the same dramatic transformation. The transformation is from death to life. The man that was healed by Jesus said it best. He said, I once was blind, but now I, I see. This is why we say the church is unstoppable. This word church, the ecclesia that I defined earlier, is referenced in the New Testament 115 times. The word church. Do you know when the word church was first used and who first used it? Well, this isn't a pop quiz. Um, it was Jesus. Jesus asked the disciples, uh, he called them together and he said, who do you say, who do they say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah's, Elijah, and some others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then Jesus took Peter aside and he said, but you, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, he said, you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's the word. I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not prevail against it or overcome it. 
Now this is a familiar quotation in the Bible, and if you grew up Roman Catholic, this, this, this saying that you are Peter is seared into your consciousness, because this is the verse that is used to justify their doctrine of the papacy. However, I want you to focus on what Jesus said about, about building the church. Uh, we call this sermon series Unstoppable, and this is one of the primary reasons. Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, so back to the pop quiz, okay? Jesus was the first one that said uh, the word church, but here's the other multiple choice. We'll make it a multiple choice pop quiz. Um, th this word gates, uh, the, when, when you hear the word gates uh, in this type of setting, is the gates an offensive or a defensive structure? The, the word gates is actually defense. It's not, it's not offense. Uh, you put up gates to keep something out, to keep something from intruding into your territory. Uh, it, you see, these are the gates of hell, and they're set up by the demons of hell to keep the church back from intruding into their territory. It's time we understand that we're on offense, not defense. It's time to stop playing defense and to begin to play offense, especially at this time. So right from the very beginning, the very first time the word ecclesia is used by Jesus, it's in the context of, of a battle. He is the one that is building. Jesus is the one that is building his church. However, the church will be in a battle. Uh, and this is what Jesus says. When Jesus says that the very gates of hell will not stop the church, he's referring to this battle between the growth of the church and the gates of hell. It's kind of different than what you learn probably in, in Sunday school. So, of course, when Saul comes out and starts talking about Jesus, the people are a little confused. Uh, verse 21 says, Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? You know, if, if you think that these Christians were confused, think what the enemy thought. Their champion, Saul, the one that was going to stomp out this, this growth of Christianity, has just been converted. Also, when you think of terms like offense and defense, when you embrace the fact that this is, a, this is truly a battle that we're engaged in, remember that we're not struggling against flesh and blood. That's what the Bible says. We don't struggle against flesh and blood. The Apostle Paul said it best in Ephesians 6. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Paul sees quickly what it means actually to be um, in a struggle, um, and what's it like to, <laughs> to, to fight against the forces of evil. In verse 23 it says, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot began, uh, became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through a wall in a large basket. These many days that were passed needs a little bit of clarification. Uh, because of what Paul wrote a few years later to both the Galatians as well as to the Corinthians, we know a lot more about Paul and about this time immediately following his conversion in Damascus. 
Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians that immediately after his, his conversion in Damascus, he traveled to Arabia. And he was there for, for three years and afterwards returned to Damascus. And that's where this story is picking up in Acts. His point and why this is important is because Paul began his conversation with the Galatians saying that the gospel he preached was not devised by human wisdom, nor had he received it from the other apostles. Rather, and this is a quote, Paul says he was taught directly by Jesus Christ himself. Well, he reminded them that he was well-trained. Um, he was a student of Gamaliel, and he understood the Hebrew and the Greek. That wasn't the knowledge that he needed to be able to, to fully persuade the people. He was taught by, by Jesus Christ and for three years. Many scholars simply believe that Paul implied that he spent three years being taught by Jesus and maybe he was just reading the scriptures. But, but Paul says that he has a, a right to be called an apostle because he was, just like the other disciples, he spent three years with the Lord Christ. You know, so Paul has to be let down through a hole in the wall after he comes back and starts preaching about Jesus at night in a large basket. You can kind of picture that because the Jews plotted to, to kill him. This is again a reminder that as the church, the body of Christ, we are definitely in a battle. Now the scriptures say their plot became known to Saul. Their plot became known to Saul. You may have never thought of yourself as a conspiracy advocate or a conspiracy theorist, but let me correct your thoughts. You see, there is a conspiracy. It involves all of hell, all of the demons and all of the minions, all the principalities and powers of the air. They're organized and they're doing everything they can possibly do to stop the growth of the church. One of the devices this enemy uses is fear. Fear is a, a great motivator and quite often the enemy knows that fear can shut us down. God does not want us to fear. Presently the entire world is being fed fear 24-7. Just turn on your TV. Actually, I don't recommend that. And you'll see that fear is the most popular show on TV, morning, afternoon, and night. It's also on the radio and the internet and likely the topic of conversation in our homes. Don't buy in to fear. Uh, from time to time, you may need to make a decision like, like Saul or Paul. There was a time when he heard about his conspiracy, cons the conspiracy and he acted, he fled, he ran. Sometimes you run, sometimes you stay, but you're never to be acting out of fear. God told the people of Israel, do not fear. He wanted the people of Israel to, to trust him. Back in Deuteronomy, God, uh, God through Moses said, be strong and be courageous. Do not be fear or be in dread of them. That's the enemy that Israel was facing. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus told us in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. That is to be fearful. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Then Jesus said, sufficient is the day to its own trouble. You see, we're, we're in a battle. And you can't win the battle if you're motivated by fear, if you're afraid of the enemy. 
Before we continue, let me also encourage you. You need, I need, we all need to be in church. I know I told you the church is a people and not a building, but the Bible also tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves um, as some others, as some do. If your church is open, be there. If you have to wear a mask, wear one. So let's continue. We're going to go continue with verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenist, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So this is three years later, as we said. It was three years that Paul spent in Arabia with Jesus. And then he came back to Damascus. And then he caught up with Barnabas and some of the disciples in Jerusalem. Paul has been getting his teaching directly from, from Jesus. Uh, we also know in his other epistle that he spent some time with Peter and James. James is the Lord's brother, who was also the head, the bishop of the church in Jerusalem at the time. Scripture says that the rest of the disciples were afraid. They didn't believe that Saul was a, a true a disciple. That's, there's that word again, afraid. It's fear that can so quickly overcome our, our faith. This is one of the reasons why we need to reject fear and keep the faith. And it says in verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Now, now Paul is a very fortunate man. And the reason I say this is because he has, has two friends. The first was Ananias. Ananias was a little concerned when the Lord spoke to him in a vision to go and lay hands on Saul. But Ananias overcame his fear and greeted Saul with the greeting, Brother Saul. It was Ananias that was Paul's first friend. And then in Jerusalem, now we see, we see Barnabas. We shouldn't be surprised that it was Barnabas that encouraged Saul, or Paul, and supported him and told the apostles how Paul had preached about Jesus boldly in Damascus. The first time we saw Barnabas was back a few chapters in chapter 4. He was one of the early disciples. His name at the time was Joseph, but they named him Barnabas, which is translated as son of encouragement. The scriptures say that Barnabas was a wealthy Levite from Cyprus who had some, some land, and he sold the land and took the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles so that it could be used in ministry. Barnabas would accompany Paul on his first missionary journey. And the Bible calls Barnabas a, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and, and faith. These are the kind of friends that we all need. Let's continue with our readings. Verse 31. Then the churches throughout all of Judea, and Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now, just a few verses before, this chapter started with the words that Saul was breathing threats 
and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's in the very first verse of chapter 9. But God is sovereign. And God had a plan for Saul, who was a terrible threat. But, but Saul would become the Apostle Paul. Notice also how the church is growing, how it is multiplying. And the scripture says that they were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they were multiplied. This fear, this fear of the Lord is the, is the right kind of fear. It's the only healthy and appropriate respect and response when we're confronted with a God that is awesome, who, who's eternal, who has limitless power and total authority over everything in the universe. It doesn't mean that we're afraid of God. It means that we, are, we fear not to do His will. The second half of this section of the scripture focuses on, on Peter. Remember that this is an historical account, and Dr. Luke is going back and forth between Saul, also called Paul, Paul is just the Greek name for Saul, and Peter. He's going back and forth, providing information on the growth of the church, and he's spending some time presently on these, these two main players, Peter and Paul. Verse 32, now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydia. There he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. You know, this, this, script, this part of the scriptures, this part of the uh, ninth chapter of Acts, deals with this healing of this man named Aeneas, as well as the section that immediately follows, which is fall from death to life of Tabitha, also called Dorcas. It's inserted here by Dr. Luke, and it's important. It's, it's a foul-up on the fouling verse about the growth of the church. It, remember, it had said that, that the church was growing, it was multiplying, and they all had peace and, and were edified. This word peace in Hebrew is shalom, and it means much more than the absence of war or aggression. Likely the churches, the Christians, still continued to have some, some persecution, but the persecution wasn't hindering them. It was advancing their cause. Now this word shalom has the idea not only of, of peace, but also of, of well-being, of wholeness, of health. And it's the health and the well-being that Luke is going to address with the, the healing that Peter is going, that just, just completed here in Lydia, as well as the story we have next of Tabitha, also called Dorcas. The town of Lydia is just mentioned once in the New Testament and is mentioned only once in the Old Testament by the Hebrew name Lod. You can still feel, find it today on the map, just northeast of, of Jerusalem. Um, it's known by its Hebrew name of Lod. It's the location of the modern uh, Ben-Gurion airport just outside of Tel Aviv. Since it is also mentioned, we can assume uh, that there was a vibrant Christian discipleship group going on there, that the, the town had understood who Jesus Christ was, that he was the Messiah, and, and the church was multiplying in Lydia. The account says that Peter went to visit the saints there. Note the specificity that Dr. Luke uses in describing the details of this account. 
It was the city. The city name was Lydia. The personal name of the individual was Aeneas. The ailment that Aeneas had, he was paralyzed and bedridden. And the amount of time that Aeneas had been stricken or bedridden was eight years. These are the details that are being added by a, a medical professional as well as a very gifted historian. This provides a tremendous amount of believability and credibility to this ancient historical account. Next we'll read the account of Tabitha who actually dies. Verse 36, at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds which she did but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room, and since Lydia was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. There were only ten people, ten people total in the Bible that were raised from the dead. And this is actually what the disciples are expecting Peter to do. Ten, just ten. Um, and as there are ten, let me tell you who these, these ten are. And again, this will not be a, a pop quiz. Let me tell you who they are. The first one was Elijah the Tishbite, who raised the son of the widow of Zarephath. The second was his student, his protege, Elijah, who raised the Shunammite woman's son. And then there was an unknown dead man of Israel who was raised from the dead when the people carrying his coffin uh, panicked and they tossed him into the grave of Elisha. As soon as the, his, his, this dead man's body touched Elisha's bones, the dead man came to life and stood up. It's an unusual story to say the least. Now Jesus raised the son of the widow in the village of Nahum, and then Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus, uh, and then Jesus rose Lazarus to dead, that's in John 11, and then number seven, Jesus rose from the dead himself. I love it that that just happens to be number seven in our count of ten that were raised from the dead. Seven is the, the number of perfection. Jesus rose from the dead. Number eight was after Jesus died on the cross, the gospel account says that there was an earthquake and that many graves were open and many dead godly people were seen alive. Number nine, and this is number nine, Tabitha will be raised from the dead. And then as we continue to read in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, we'll see that there's going to be a young man, a Eutychus, a Eutychus, who falls asleep during one of Paul's sermons and he falls out of a window. And Paul goes downstairs, reaches to the man, raises Eutychus back to life, comes back upstairs so that he can finish his sermon. No, he, he actually gives him something to eat. But those are only the ten, only ten people in the entire Bible, 3,500 years and more, of recorded history, almost 4,500 years of history, and only 10 people that were raised from the dead. This tells us something. First, it tells us that the people attending to Tabitha, who had already washed her body, meaning that they, she was dead, had great faith in Peter's ministry and the power of God. Jesus had raised people from the dead, and they believed that Peter, being his disciple, could do the same thing. Secondly, especially when you consider that there were ten, only ten that were raised from the dead, it tells us that God is sovereign. Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for just a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. 
See, here's the thing. Whether we, we live or we die, God is still God. God has a plan. God is, God is sovereign. And no one can take your life from you. Only if God wills it. There's, there's no reason for us to, to fear. Jesus tells us very close, very clearly, he says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So let's see what Peter does. This is verse 39. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all of the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. You know, this is a, this is a very interesting story. You know, there's some speculation that perhaps the widows had gone to Peter, not so much to bring Peter back to raise uh, Dorcas from the dead, but to be able to provide some, some comfort um, to the Christian widows, the, the family and the friends of, of the dead woman. In any case, Peter sensed a, a specific calling, a specific leading. And notice it says in the scriptures that he, he put them all out. I mean, we saw this earlier in the ministry of Jesus, uh, when, when Jesus was, uh, was called by Jairus, Jairus uh, to heal his, um, his servant, um, Jesus put them all out. And Peter put them all out in anticipation of something that, that God was about to do. Let me, let me tell you, friends, I'm no Peter and I'm certainly no Paul, but this is all we can do. All we can do is follow the lead of what Jesus has already done when we read in the Bible. God still heals. God still restores. And God can still raise people from the dead. Our job is to, to humbly follow what God seems to be saying to us, seems to be telling us to do. And we need to believe that God is able to accomplish whatever He's told us to accomplish. You know, there were others that had died. Early we, we read that, that Stephen had died. And you know, Stephen was an amazing man of faith, full of the Spirit and preaching and doing mighty works. And it seems like Stephen might have been more important to the church than Dorcas. But see, that's, that's our human reasoning. That's not God's reasoning. His, his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. This name, Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas, is the, is the same name in two languages, Aramaic and Greek. They both mean the word deer. That's D-E-E-R, um, uh, as a four-legged grown-up Bambi. Um, it's a deer, an animal. Um, and, and that's why both names are being used in the scriptures. Uh, it's, not, it's like our constant switching from Saul to Paul and from Simon to Peter. Uh, one, one of the verses that we'll be taking a look at uh, later, it says that he, Peter, stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. You see, the, the scriptures say that Peter is with, with, with uh, si Peter is staying with Simon, same names, Peter is staying with Simon, and that Simon was a, was a tanner. Now it says, it says that a picture is worth a thousand words. Have you heard that? 
A picture is worth a thousand words. And this picture of Peter staying in Joppa with a tanner is a picture for us. It's a picture. The religious Jews avoided interaction with, with tanners. Now tanners, that was a very valuable profession. They, they tanned the hide of animals in order to make leather. At the same time, their job made them ceremonially unclean because they touched dead animals. Touching anything dead made you ceremonially unclean. Because of this, scholars say that now we see Peter becoming less concerned with Jewish traditions and ceremonial notions than, than perhaps before. And I, and I think that's true. Again, we see the amazing Dr. Luke at work because this is a transition verse into the next chapter. Because in the very next chapter, we'll see, we'll see Peter with Cornelius. And he has this vision from God of these animals that comes down on a, on a bed sheet, all of these unclean animals. And he hears the voice saying, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. So hopefully that'll give you enough of an appetite to be sure to tune in next week as we continue our study in the book of Acts. I want to thank you, first of all, for, for joining us. And, and please invite your family and friends to, to join us every Sunday at 11 and 6 o'clock for our, our live service with, with worship. Um, beginning in the next few weeks on Wednesdays, we'll be looking at, at prophecy in the Bible in a new study called Pondering Prophecy. It just so happens that prophecy occupies about 25% of the Bible, so we're not going to run out of, out of material anytime soon. And of course, we'll be looking at some, some current events and seeing how they may or may not have prophetic significance. Do us a favor, if you're watching this on YouTube, would you not only like the video, but would you subscribe as well? That's a great way for us to be able to, to get our audience broader and for more people to be able to find us when they search for specific sermons and messages on YouTube. Our website is at www.faithdialogue.org and you'll find information about our ministry. All of our video broadcasts, all of our videos, all of our audio broadcasts are on our website as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's pray. Father You've been God, listening we listening to Faith thank Dialogue you. with thank Pastor you, Ken Bear, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.